Everyone is sitting so well. The energy in the zendo is so silent and strong. It's wonderful. You know you could not have done this on your own. You could not have sat for this many days on your own. This is the beauty of Sangha. The Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the greater discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. Thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town of theirs called Kama Saradama, and there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied, and the Lord said, There is, monks, this one way to the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of nirvana. That is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, a monk abides contemplating body as the body, or some translations are in the body. Hogan Uh, uses that phrase, the body in the body, from within the body, we contemplate the body. Ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, or clinging and grief for the world, he abides contemplating feelings from within feelings. So this means not to think about your feelings or not to think about your body, but to be inside the body, feeling the body from the inside, inside the feelings. He abides contemplating mind as mind from within the mind. She abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. And the great Bhikkhu Bodhi comments, the Satipatthana Sutta does not recommend a single meditation subject, nor even a single method of meditation. Its purpose, rather, is to explain how to establish the mode of contemplation needed to arrive at the realization of nirvana. The mode of contemplation needed to arrive at the realization of nirvana. The appropriate frame of mind to be established, as is implied by the title of the sutra, is called an establishment of mindfulness. The word satipatthana should probably be understood as a compound of sati, mindfulness, and upatthana, establishment. So we have to know when mindfulness is established, when it is strong and when it's weak, and when we're not being mindful. In this Rohatsu Sashin, and Hogan pointed out that I called it the Perinirvana Sashin, but Perinirvana Sashin is in February. Uh, this is their Nirvana Sashin, when the Buddha realizes enlightenment, full enlightenment. The Perinirvana Sashin, Perinirvana means nirvana without remainder. So when his body disappears, but nirvana remains. So that's, you, that'll come in February. <coughs> But hopefully not for all of us. We'll just commemorate the, the Buddha's parinirvana. <laughs> not ready, I hope, to drop our bodies quite yet. 
So in Rohatsu Sashin, we talk openly about enlightenment. Generally, in Zen practice, we don't talk directly about enlightenment. We often talk indirectly about it, about how to get there and what is it like. Why do we not talk directly in Zen about enlightenment? Although we encourage people to become enlightened. Because discussing it makes people seize on the words and try to become enlightened by thinking about the words about enlightenment, by discussing it, by philosophizing about it. There are many Zen koans about this phenomenon that, given words, we will come up here and try to make a concept, try to understand it as a concept. Enlightenment is not a concept. Muan Khan. The wind was flapping a temple flag and two monks started an argument. One said that the flag moved, the other said that the wind moved. They argued back and forth, but could not reach a conclusion. The sixth ancestor heard them and said, It is not the wind that moves, it is not the flag that moves, it is your mind that moves. The monks were awestruck. The monks were awestruck is actually the most important part of this koan. It means that they had an understanding, they had an opening. Maybe then, for a few moments, their minds were still. Good, because a mind empty of argument, unmoved by thoughts and emotions, crossing his field, is a prerequisite to enlightenment. The monks were awestruck. Maybe, for a few moments, their minds were still. And mind empty of argument, unmoved by thoughts and emotions, is a prerequisite to enlightenment. Or another example, when the second ancestor cried out in desperation to Bodhidharma, Master, please help me, my mind is not pacified. And Bodhidharma said, show me your mind and I will pacify it for you. And the second ancestor searched through his body, heart and mind, as we've been doing. And his mind was unfindable, fundamentally unfindable. And he had an opening. or in the chant that we do at lunch, the faith and mind, the Xinxing Ming, written by the third Zen ancestor. The way is perfect like vast space where there's no lack and no excess. Your choice to choose and to reject prevents you from seeing this simple truth. Cut off all useless thoughts and words and there's nowhere you cannot go. Returning to the root itself you'll find the meaning of all things. Cut off all useless thoughts and words. That's actually a wonderful practice instruction. So when my mind, typically towards the beginning of Sashin, is busy generating thoughts, and here comes a thought, and I say to my mind, is this an important thought to think right now? Or is this a useless thought? And maybe 99% of the time, it's a useless thought. So we let it go. Cut off all useless thoughts, and there's nowhere you cannot go. Dogen Genji says of this, think of non-thinking. This is the essential art of Zazen. So this is an instruction very close to awareness of awareness. Think of non-thinking. Or the way I like to practice it is to go to the source of thought, sit at the source of thought, and see if I can detect a thought emerging before it emerges. Think of non-thinking. 
This is the essential art of Zazen. This is the ordinary mind that Zen masters mean when they speak of the unborn. Your mind before your parents were born, or ordinary mind is the way. The same master who said ordinary mind is the way also said ordinary mind is not the way. Ordinary mind here refers to our, does not refer, does not refer to our ordinary anxiety-plagued, planning, scheming, ruminating, and regretting confusion of thoughts and emotions. We all know that's not the way to happiness. That's not the way to end suffering. So ordinary mind is the way does not mean that mind. It means the mind before you had any thoughts. It means when you were pure awareness. It means open your hands and walk innocently. It means that innocent, pure mind before thoughts emerge from the source of thought, before emotions plague us. When that becomes ordinary, when that becomes our way of functioning, when that infuses our thoughts and our speech and our way of functioning, then ordinary mind is the way. Once you see it, once you experience it for yourself, it's obvious, as my Maizumi Roshi used to say over and over again, it's so obvious. So this session I've been emphasizing the four foundations of mindfulness. And I've been leading the four foundations each morning for several reasons. First, we hear the Buddha's strongest recommendation his words transmitted to us over the space of 2,560 years through Ananda's remarkable phonographic memory. Gurdjieff, the great spiritual master in Europe, had students who were very ardent, but they were only able to meet with him personally, perhaps once or twice a year. And then they could only ask him one question. So imagine if you only got to see your teacher once a year and you only got to ask one question. So they spent a lot of time picking and formulating that one question. If you were able to sit in front of the Buddha and had one chance to ask him one question, what would you ask? I don't think you'd ask about whether you should get a degree or quit college or write your old boyfriend or girlfriend or see if they still like you, or find a different job or get a dog, even though your spouse doesn't want one. (laughs) What would be your one question for the Buddha? Wouldn't you ask the best way, the best practice to do to become enlightened? Maybe you'd want to ask about the fastest way, But knowing that that sounds a bit egotistical and and impatient, you would change it to the best way. But the Buddha answers the question in this sutra. There is one way to the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress. That is the four foundations of mindfulness. There is one way, one way, the one in one way, or the one way, those two words can be translated as the only way, or some translators say the one and only way. Literally, it means one going, one going. 
the great practitioner and translator Nanamoli translates it as a path that goes one way only. Well, that's wonderful. It means that if we follow it, it will surely lead to enlightenment. So the Buddha might say, there is a path that goes only one way to enlightenment, and that is the four foundations of mindfulness. Probably that is the meaning, rather than this is the only way to enlightenment. Because the other meditations that the Buddha said will lead us to enlightenment are the jhanas, the deep meditative states, which won't make any sense unless you've entered them, and the four immeasurables, which make a lot of sense. And we have a session every year where we practice either loving kindness or all four of the four immeasurables as we did this year. The four immeasurables, loving kindness, which is a specific antidote to anger and ill will. Compassion, which is a specific antidote to our tendency to be harmful, even with little words or gestures or turning away from someone or the way we look at them. Sympathetic joy, which is the specific antidote to discontent and jealousy. And equanimity, which is the antidote to partiality, liking some picking and choosing, liking some things better than others. So the Buddha said that all of these can lead to enlightenment. The second reason that we practice the four foundations of mindfulness is because they work. Certainly I have found them to work, and I hope you have during this session. The Buddha speaks of the absolute necessity to train the mind. And the four foundations of mindfulness are a beautiful way to train the mind. This is from the Anutta Nikaya. The mind is the key. The Buddha said, I do not perceive even one other thing, O monks, that is so unwieldy as an undeveloped mind. An undeveloped mind is truly unwieldy, meaning we can't lift it up. It's a burden that we have to carry around. I do not perceive even one other thing, O monks, that is so wieldy as a developed mind. A developed mind is truly wieldy. I do not perceive even one other thing, O monks, that leads to such great harm as an undeveloped mind. An undeveloped mind leads to great harm. I do not perceive even one other thing, O monks, that leads to such great benefit as a developed mind. A developed mind leads to great benefit. I do not perceive even one other thing, O monks, that when undeveloped and uncultivated entails such great suffering as the mind. The mind, when undeveloped and uncultivated, entails great suffering. I do not perceive even one other thing, O monks, that when developed and cultivated entails such great happiness as the mind. The mind, when developed and cultivated, entails great happiness. So the mind, although in the four foundations of mindfulness we practice with the body and the heart, and then the mind ground and the mind objects, we're really practicing with the mind. All of these are phenomenon of mind. The mind is the source of suffering, and the mind is the source of liberation. 
The Buddha also spoke of what is necessary to train the mind. So this is um, Bhikkhu Bodhi speaking. about the gradual training. In Zen, we sometimes make this distinction between the gradual path and the sudden path. And from everything that I've experienced and read, the gradual path leads to the sudden path. That when the, when the Zen koans say, a monk in all earnestness asked, it means that he was sweating over this question and practicing deeply with it for months or years. Also, there was a lot of training that went on in Zen monasteries, classically, in the precepts, in the sutras, and so on. And there was a master who taught each of those, a precepts master, a sutra master, a chanting master, a meditation master. So there was a gradual path that led to all of these beautiful stories of sudden openings. They didn't occur just out of the blue. So uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the gradual training is divided into the three sections. So these are the necessities for the path. Moral discipline, concentration, and wisdom. Moral discipline begins with the observance of the precepts, which anchor one's actions in principles of conscientious behavior and moral restraint. The undertaking of the precepts, particularly the monastic precepts, is called training in the higher moral discipline. Moral discipline, consistently observed, infuses the mind with the purifying force of moral vir virtue, generating joy and deeper confidence in the Dhamma. Established upon moral discipline, the disciple takes up, and this is the second necessity, the practice of meditation intended to stabilize the mind and clear away the obstacles to the unfolding of wisdom. Because meditation elevates the mind beyond its normal level, this phase of practice is called the training in the higher mind. Because it brings inner stillness and quietude, it is also called the development of serenity. Successful practice results in deep concentration or mental unification. Another beautiful definition of concentration, mental unification. Also known as internal serenity of mind. The most eminent types of concentration recognized in the Nikayas are the four jhanas, which constitute right concentration of the Noble Eightfold Path. The third stage of practice is the training in the higher wisdom designated to awaken direct insight into the true nature of things as disclosed by the Buddha's teachings. So moral discipline, meditation, concentration, mental unification, also known as internal serenity of the mind, and then the training in higher wisdom. There are two basic aspects that the Buddha described to training the mind for enlightenment. This talk is a case of, it always happens to me during session, I think, wow, there's so much to talk about, but I don't want to give too much in one talk, so I'll just save this for the next talk, and I'll save this, 
And then the last talk, I go, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. So you're getting um, two talks in one here. <laughs> so two aspects, two skills in cultivating the mind, serenity and insight. The Buddha said, two things, O monks, partake of true knowledge. What two? Serenity and insight. When serenity is developed, what benefit does one experience? The mind is developed. When the mind is developed, what benefit does one experience? All clinging is abandoned, which also means aversion. When insight is developed, what benefit does one experience? Wisdom is developed. When wisdom is developed, what benefit does one experience? All ignorance is abandoned. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi comments that this sutra confirms that both serenity and insight are necessary and also indicates the skills needed for their respective practice. The cultivation of serenity requires skill in steadying, composing, unifying, and concentrating the mind. The cultivation of insight requires skill in observing, investigating, and discerning conditioned phenomena, spoken of as formations. The sutra confirms that some meditators begin by developing internal serenity of the mind, others by developing the higher wisdom of investigation and insight into phenomena, and others by developing both in tandem. But while meditators may start off differently, eventually they must all strike a healthy balance between serenity and insight. The exact point of balance between the two will differ from one person to another, but when a meditator achieves the appropriate balance, serenity and insight join forces to issue in the knowledge and vision of world-transcending wisdom. In Zen, we say this more, a little more succinctly. Guideposts for silent illumination. Conversing and certifying, they respond appropriately to each other. But if illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears. Certifying and conversing, they respond to each other appropriately. But if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. Do you see? Serenity and insight. But if we develop insight, we can develop aggressiveness. We can develop pride. Illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears. If we just develop serenity and no wisdom, then our practice is wasted, the dharma is wasted. <coughs> Training the mind occurs in stages. You can see some of these stages as you progress through Sashin. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi again. There are successive stages in the purification of the mind, often compared to the refinement of gold. And this is an image I had long ago, that when we, our mind is like a cauldron of gold, of pure gold, our enlightened nature, but uh, our life, through our life, a lot of impure things have been dropped into that cauldron. They've all been wounded and bumped and um, wounded and developed abscesses, and so on. So there are a lot of impurities in this pure gold. And that when we sit zazen, and we really 
heat up the mind, Zazen is like a furnace, then all of those impurities melt and come to the top. And if we leave them alone, if we don't mess with them, if we don't start thinking about them and trying to change them and change the past, and so on, we just let, let them alone, let them bubble up, witness them and let them go. Then we're boiling the mind down to its pure, refined state. And Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it a little differently than that image. The meditating monk begins by removing the gross impurities of bodily, verbal, and men- mental conduct. This is achieved by moral discipline and vigilant introspection. Then he eliminates the middle-level impurities of unwholesome thoughts, thoughts of sensuality, ill will, and harmfulness. Next come the subtle impurities of meandering thoughts. It's one we know well, right? First, he must eliminate thoughts about, oh, finally, he must eliminate thoughts about the Dhamma, the subtlest obstacle. We know that, the thought that comes comes in, intrudes on your beautiful serenity. I must be getting close. Ooh. (laughs) I just fell out of it. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, eliminating thoughts about the Dhamma is the subtlest obstacle. Or in days when we used to read the chapters on enlightenment experiences in Three Pillars of Zen, that, that kind of thought would intrude. Oh, I must be nearing Enlightenment number six, PK, a businessman. <laughs> and then the mind, the mind would recite that, that image of enlightenment. Huh? When all such distracting thoughts are removed, the monk attains mental unification, the basis for the six direct knowledges. So those are the stages in purifying the mind. The Buddha was aware that people are different and that any one person encounters different difficulties and obstacles at different stages of life and practice. Thus he taught a number of meditation methods. This is again Bhikkhu Bodhi. The Nikayas sometimes compare the process of training the mind to the taming of a wild elephant. That's the elephant on the front of the elephant book. Which, which some people didn't like, right? <laughs> but the Buddha said, you, if you want to train an elephant, you have to bring it out of the forest, and then you have to stake it, because it keeps wanting to run back to the forest, the forest, the wilderness of thoughts and emotions. We have to stake it down, and that stake is mindfulness. Just as the animal trainer has to use various techniques to bring the animal under control, and that's after the elephant quits struggling, be nice. Sometimes we have periods when our mind is not struggling. The meditator has to draw upon various methods to subdue the mind. It is not enough to be acquainted with one meditation technique. One must be skilled in a number of methods intended as antidotes to specific mental obstructions. The sutras teach various techniques of meditation aimed at inducing concentration. One formula 
which is popular pit specific meditation subjects against the unwholesome metal, mental states they are intended to rectify. So all of these kinds of meditation were developed for specific afflictive med- uh, mental states. Thus the meditation on the unattractive nature of the body is a remedy for sensual lust. So a very simple uh, formulation of that is you bring to mind the person you're lusting for and then you just take off their skin in your mind and see what happens to lust. Loving kindness is the remedy for ill will. Mindfulness of breathing is the remedy for restlessness. And the perception of impermanence is the remedy for conceit, for pride about our temporary condition of beauty or youth or vigor, intelligence, and so on. The perception of impermanence is a subject of insight meditation, the other three subjects of serenity meditation. Loving-kindness is the first of the four divine abodes, Brahma-viharas, and it is the remedy for ill-will. Compassion is the remedy for harmfulness. Unselfish, altruistic joy, the remedy for discontent and jealousy and equanimity for partiality, for picking and choosing. So we might become impatient and want to skip stages. Americans beginning meditation often tell Tibetan masters, I'd like to do the advanced practices. It's a joke that Tibetan masters tell all the time when we're meeting with them. Yeah, this, this is what Americans are like. They say, oh, I'll skip the preliminaries. I just like to go to the advanced practices. And they, and they just go, no. <laughs> the stages are not just steps on a steep path. Each stage is also a resting place, a lovely meadow where you can relax and enjoy your practice. The path and the fruit, they occur together. You know this about samadhi, shamatha, undisturbed serenity of mind. You know this when it occurs. We could call it a stage, but it's also a beautiful resting place and a gift. Once it opens, it's so lovely that we don't want to leave it. And we can get stuck there. So when the Buddha says, In order to begin our meditation, we must put aside clinging and grief for the world, or some people say fretting for the world, a constant mental fretting for the world. Uh, One commentator says that, yes, we have to put it aside to a certain degree or we can enter samadhi, but that the practice also cures the clinging and fretting for the world. So these go together. Or loving-kindness, it makes us feel so good when we are in a field of loving-kindness, when we are receiving and sending loving-kindness. It makes us feel so good to practice it. That's great, because that means we'll practice it more. But it's not enlightenment. 
During this session, I've been talking about two basic aspects of our practice, concentration and open awareness. So that's been the emphasis this session, concentration and open awareness. So with each of the four foundations, we would begin with concentration, and then we would open it up into a wider awareness. Absolutely necessary, hmm? both. Concentration is absolutely necessary. The Buddha talked about the qualities, actually the abilities of his mind, that he cultivated before his enlightenment. And this is one of my favorite phrases in the Pali Canon, because it's a direct instruction about what we have to do to train our mind. He said, with my concentrated mind, thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability. So each of these is a quality we can cultivate in the mind. Concentration, a mind rid of extraneous things that pull it away, the brightness of the mind, the self-illuminating aspect of the mind, where it, when you look at something, it, it opens up, it's illuminated, malleable, wieldy, meaning we can pick it up, we can redirect it if we see that it's headed for trouble. But concentration comes first. Concentration comes first. The others follow from concentration. An imperturbable, steady, equanimous mind, and a mind that is light and flexible, can be picked up and redirected if it's headed for trouble. And it buys us time if something comes towards us that startles us and has the potential to disturb us. If we have cultivated equanimity, it's always there. It's accessible to us. We know how to find it, whether it's the Zen method of drop into your hara or other methods that have been cultivated. It's there. It's available. It's a resource for us. You've all seen the necessity for concentration this session. It's relatively easy to concentrate on body sensations. But when we open the mind into the body of the room, it becomes harder. It's relatively easy to kindle and grow a field of loving kindness when we bring someone or, or a being that we love into our awareness. But it becomes harder when we bring people that we don't like into the field, people that we have trouble with. And when we moved then on to the mind, the mind ground, you have seen that it's hard to open the mind ground and hold it open. It is hard not to be distracted by the thoughts that flow through. It is hard to hold awareness on awareness itself. We wander off again and again. The field collapses. We forget what we were supposed to be doing. The one translation of mindfulness is recollection. Recalling, oh, I'm supposed to be in that awareness, not this awareness, or not these thoughts. So to be aware, to rest in the mind ground, requires concentration. It's a different kind of concentration than moving through the body part by part. 
So that's why we start with the body, move to the heart, and then move to the mind. So the sutra that I read is the Satipatthana Sutta. And the Satipatthana is a mode of dwelling. This mode of dwelling involves observation of objects in the proper frame of mind. We have to set up the proper frame of mind. The frame of mind consists of three positive qualities, energy, or ardor, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. Mindfulness is sati. Mindfulness is a catchphrase now. You know, they're selling things, Mm -hmm. uh, material things with mindfulness. I just yesterday heard that there's a bank called the Zen Bank. Another use of Zen to advertise things. means you can travel around the world and you just use one credit card and it'll give you money in different different countries' denominations. I'm not sure how that's related to Zen, but they do. Uh, the, word, the word sati originally meant memory, but in the present context, it signifies recollection of the present. Recollection of the present, a sustained awareness of what is happening to us and within us on each occasion of experience. Mindfulness in its initial stages is concerned with keeping the contemplative mind continually on its object, which means keeping the object continually present to the mind. Mindfulness prevents the mind from slipping away, from drifting off under the sway of random thoughts into mental proliferation and forgetfulness. Mindfulness is often said to occur in close conjunction with clear comprehension, a clear knowledge and understanding of what one is experiencing. So that's why we, why we were doing, essentially, concentration or mindfulness sprints, because it's so hard to maintain that for long periods of time. We have to train ourselves with little sprints, train ourselves for the marathon of holding awareness all the time, holding the mind in open awareness all the time as things keep occurring, including thoughts. So to do a mindfulness sprint from here to the cafeteria to hold our awareness in just in our feet. That requires concentration, a lot of concentration. It requires a lot of energy. Or to hold our awareness in the bottom of the feet while circling mats one time during kinhin. It's a kind of challenge, a fun challenge we can issue to ourselves. Can I do it? Oops, slipped off. Okay, back again. That's what mindfulness is. Knowing when we start to slip. People think, oh, I want to be perfect to begin with. You can't be perfect to begin with. And mindfulness includes forgetting and remembering, forgetting and recollecting. So the analogy I all, always use is, you don't. if you're trying to build muscle, physical muscle, you don't lift the weight and hold it for an hour. No, you put it down. You pick it back up again, you put it down, you pick it back up again, you put it down, you pick it back up again. And it's the same with developing the power of the mind, our mental power. We hold the object of concentration 
we lose it. We bring it back. We hold it. We lose it. We bring it, bring it back. It's that bringing back which develops the muscle, the power of our mind. And eventually, we can hold it. Just like somebody who's trained their muscles can hold a much bigger weight for a longer period of time if life requires it. So you can make up your own mindfulness or concentration sprints or wide awareness sprints. That's how we train ourselves. You know, I've been doing walking meditation for what, 45 years, 50 years? And it's just becoming more and more interesting. There's so many delicate sensations on the bottom of the feet, and to see which ones occur first, and then then now, and then now, and then now, and then pick up, and then movement, and now, and then now, and then now, and then now. It's really lovely. But it requires effort. You might like to know that the Buddha's main meditation was, guess, in your mind, guess, the Buddha's main meditation was breath. We think of breath meditation, oh, that's a beginner's meditation, and we teach all our beginners the breath meditation, but it's not. It's a very advanced practice. It just becomes more and more subtle. So this is a little paragraph on the Buddha's use of breathing. The Buddha said that he used mindfulness of breathing as his main meditation subject for the attainment of enlightenment. During his teaching career, he occasionally went into seclusion to devote himself to, this is quoting him in the Samyutta Nikaya, devoting himself to concentration gained through mindfulness of breathing. And the Buddha conferred honor on breath meditation a unique honor by calling it the Tathagata's dwelling. So that's a beautiful instruction to us, to cultivate mindfulness of breathing, breathing meditation, until it becomes a dwelling place for us, a beautiful, refreshing dwelling place for us. And actually, in the suttas, they talk about 16 aspects of breath meditation. We could have a whole breath meditation session and study those 16 aspects. Now, we might think, oh, the Buddha, had an, he had an easy time doing breath meditation. He was the Buddha, after all. But I'll just read you a little bit from his own description of what it was like for him to try to use breath meditation in order to crush thoughts, another difficult struggle we go through. So this is how he used breath meditation to, and how he tried to, con to crush thoughts, get rid of thoughts. I thought, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. So with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my mind. While I did so, sweat ran from my armpits just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so too, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mine with mine, and sweat ran from my armpits. But although tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established, 
my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful striving. But such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. I'll bet you could give a whole Dharma talk on that. Such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. So then he, th- he says, I thought, suppose I practice breathing less meditation. So I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth and nose. When I did so, there was a loud sound of winds coming out from my ear holes. Just as there is a loud sound when the smith's bellows are blown, so too, when I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my nose and ears, there was a loud sound of wind coming out of my ear holes. And then he got exhausted from the painful striving. So then he stopped the breaths that were coming in and out through his mouth, nose, and ears. While I did so, violent winds cut through my head, just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword. Then he thought, suppose I practice by stopping the in-breath and out-breath through my mouth, nose, and ears. Then there were violent pains in my head, just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband. And then he thought, <laughs> he, did the, he tried it again in a slightly different way, stopping the in-breath and the out-breath through mouth, nose, and ears. Then violent winds carved up my belly just as if a skillful butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife. So too, that was his pain. Huh? And then a violent burning just as if two strong men were to seize a weaker man by both arms and roast him over a pit of hot coals. So though there's some, <laughs> those are some of the ways he practiced with the breath. So it wasn't easy for him either. <laughs> and he had to try different things, as we all do, and realize, hmm, that's not working. So I'm going to read to you from Karen Armstrong's beautiful book on the life of the Buddha called The Buddha. And I recommend that you all read it. She has an amazing understanding of religion from the inside of all religions. So this is the beginning of the chapter called Enlightenment. And she ends the previous chapter by saying, at that very moment he seemed to have come to a dead end. Surely, he cried, there must be another way to achieve enlightenment. Because every way that he tried, when he came out of his meditation, he was there, he was there again with all of his suffering. And in fact, some, some of the practices that he did seemed to increase his sense of self, whether a painful self or a self that needed to escape into samadhi. The legend indicated that Gotama's childhood had been spent in an unawakened state, locked away from that knowledge of suffering which alone can bring us to spiritual maturity. But in later years, he recalled that there had been one moment which had given him intimations of another mode of being. His father had taken him to watch the ceremonial plowing of the fields before the planting of the next year's crop. All the men of the villages and townships took part in this annual ceremony, so Sudadana had left his small son in the care of his nurses under the shade of a rose apple tree while he went to work. But the nurses all decided to go and watch the plowing, and finding himself alone, Gautama sat up. In one version of this story, we are told that when he looked at the field that was being plowed, 
he noticed that the young grass had been torn up, and that insects and the eggs they had laid in those new shoots had been destroyed. The little boy gazed at the carnage and felt a strange sorrow, as though it were his own relatives that had been killed. But it was a beautiful day, and a feeling of pure joy rose up unbidden in his heart. We have all experienced such moments, which come upon us unexpectedly and without any striving on our part. Indeed, as soon as we start to reflect upon our happiness, to ask why we are so joyful and become self-conscious, the experience fades. When we bring self into it, this unpremeditated joy cannot last. It is essentially a moment of ecstasy, a rapture which takes us outside the body and beyond the prism of our own egotism. Such standing outside the self has nothing to do with the craving and greed that characterize so much of our waking lives. As Gautama reflected later, this state existed apart from the objects that awaken suffering. The child had been taken out of himself by a moment of spontaneous compassion when he had allowed the pain of creatures that had nothing to do with him personally to pierce him to the heart. This surge of selfless empathy had brought him a moment of spiritual release. Instinctively, the boy composed himself and sat in the asana position with straight back and crossed legs. A natural yogin, he entered the first jhana, a trance in which the meditator feels a calm happiness, but is still able to think and reflect. Nobody had taught him the techniques of yoga, but for a few moments the child had a taste of what it might be like to leave himself behind. The commentary tells us that the natural world recognized the spiritual potential of the young Gotama. As the, as the day wore on, the shadows of the other trees moved, but not the shade of the rose apple tree, which continued to shield the boy from the blazing sun. When the nurses came back, they were stunned by the miracle and fetched Sudadana, who paid homage to the little boy. Years later, just after he had cried with mingled optimism and despair, surely there must be another way to enlightenment. Gotama recalled this childhood experience. At that moment, again unpremeditated and unsought, the memory of that childhood ecstasy rose to the surface of his mind. Emaciated, exhausted, and dangerously ill, Gotama remembered the cool shade of the rose apple tree which inevitably brought to mind the coolness of nirvana. It was then that the Buddha was ready to take his well-trained mind and use it to look deeply into the mind itself. He was able to see thousands of past lives and the karma that was generated in each life, and how it gave rise to the next life. Each of us has that ability when the mind is open and, and undisturbed, equanimous, to look into our past lives, the, very, the different stages we've gone through in this lifetime, and see how one gives rise to another, and how karma continues lifetime to lifetime, or stage of life to stage of life. The Buddha was able to see that in the state of boundless awareness, he could let things arise 
and by remaining still, he would not generate more karmic activity. He could let karma ripen and extinguish, called karmic emptying. When karma ripens, all things come to be, just as they are. And when we can see them just as they are, we are no longer ignorant, and wisdom, insight, arises by itself. There are different accounts of what the Buddha said when he was enlightened. After those many days of uninterrupted sitting, it's described as just as if there were a lake in a mountain recess, clear, limpid, and undisturbed, so that a man with good sight, standing on the bank, could see shells, gravel, and pebbles, and also shoals of fish swimming about and resting. So too, once the mind is concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilements, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, the meditator can see clearly this is suffering. This is the source of suffering. This is the end of suffering. He understands birth is destroyed. The spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. And there is no coming back to any state of being, any of our common states of being. Once we can see clearly how the mistaken notion of a separate self is constructed, once we can see clearly how the mistaken notion of a separate self is constructed, we become free. The Pali Canon says that at the moment of enlightenment, the Buddha exclaimed, Oh, house builder, some translations say jailer, Oh, house builder, I see you now. You will not build this house again. For your rafters are broken and your ridge pole shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned. I have attained the destruction of craving. In this session, you have had a glimpse of how that imprisoning house is built. You have seen that what we call a body is just a mass of sensations hanging in empty space. Color, movement, touch, sound, thought, feelings. Color, I see a little bit of pink right here. Oh, that's my nose. Or I see this pink thing waving in front of me. Oh, that's my hand. Color, movement, touch, oh. That's my hand touching my cheek. Sound, oh, there's a sound coming from over here. Oh, that's my voice. Oh, thought, mm, those are my thoughts. They're coming from up here. Ooh, feeling, oh, those are my, feel my feelings coming from here. But really, they are all hanging in empty space, blinking in and out of existence. When the mind is clear, purified, and open, 
serene, stable. You can see that clearly. Boundless, luminous awareness in which endless plenitude manifests. That is who we are and always have been. This vast consciousness simply exists. It has no beginning and no end, no birth, no death, no eyes, no ears, no tongue, no nose, no body, no mind, no season. It is not increased. It was not increased when you were born, and it will not be decreased when you die. It, not, it does not depend upon anything. It does not depend upon anything because there is no else. It does not depend on anything else because there is no else. It is thus unconditioned. But we can't end with experiencing the unconditioned, as, peif- as peaceful a dwelling as it is. At the same time, we have to see clearly that out of the unconditioned arise all things, endless beginnings and ends, even to civilizations like ours. No end to birth and death, including the death of everyone that we love. Millions of eyes, ears, nose, minds, hands. Arising, existing like bzzzt, and disappearing. At the same time, our life, our life, our individual life is an expression of that vast humming pool of endless potential. Our job is to get out of the way and let it move through us, let it guide us, unobstructed, to do work for good in this world of grief. We have to learn to balance our boundless nature and our nature and find grace and joy and humor in it. One of our chants says, The ruler stays in the kingdom. The general goes beyond the frontier. That is the balance between dwelling in the unconditioned and taking our place in the liveliness of enlightened activity in the frontier of human suffering. When silent illumination reaches the ultimate, I offer my teaching transmitted in all directions without desiring to gain recognition. Each of our lives is a teaching. Each of our lives is a manifestation of the ultimate. When we get a glimpse of this, of our essential empty nature, of the energy that flows from it and animates our lives, It is like laying aside a heavy burden. We are able to repay karma. The Buddha said, monks, suppose a man were to take a loan and undertake business, and his business were to succeed so that he could repay all the money of the old loan, and there would remain enough extra to maintain a wife. On considering this, he would be glad and full of joy. 
all of our efforts in practice earn very good interest. Very good interest. All karmic debts will be repaid when we chant all evil karma ever committed by me since of old. Of course we review our lives this lifetime, the people that we have hurt even inadvertently. It refers to that, but if we consider past lives, there are untold countless evil deeds we could have done. We all have that potential. When we practice, as we move towards enlightenment, we repay all of that difficult karma. Or suppose a man were afflicted, suffering and gravely ill, and his food would not agree with him, and his body had no strength. But later he would recover from the affliction, and his food would agree with him, and his body would regain strength. On considering this, he would be glad and full of joy. Through our practice, we can become truly healthy, even if we're dying of cancer. We can realize the full potential of our body and mind for joy and gladness. Or suppose a woman were imprisoned, but later she would be released, safe and secure, with no loss to her property. On considering this, she would be glad and full of joy. Or suppose a woman were a slave, not self-dependent but dependent on others, unable to go where she wants, but later she would be released from slavery. Self-dependent, independent of others, a free woman, able to go where she wants. On considering this, she would be glad and full of joy. Our practice can release us from the prison of self. Our practice can release us from slavery to our thoughts and emotions. Our practice can give us choice. Awareness gives us choice. And choice gives us freedom. It is my earnest wish for all of you that you will practice with right effort, diligence, perseverance, perseverance, and joy. That the fruits of practice will bear interest over and over, that the fruits of practice will nourish you and heal all your sorrows, and that you will become enlightened in this lifetime, even before me. <laughs>